Father, we come to you with hearts filled with thanksgiving that you are the God of all hope, the God of all peace, of all joy. And even though, Father, we may be going through trying times individually or even corporately, and certainly as we look through the world today, it seems that the evil one is uh, having a field day, but we know, Lord, that in the midst of it all, our God reigns. And Father, that greatly encourages our heart. And today we come to you, not because we are worthy, but because of the worthiness that has been imputed to us through Christ. And we stand in your presence this morning, inviting you to instruct us, to fill us with knowledge and understanding of yourself, to help us not only to see the path that you have set before us, but to have the desire and the willingness to walk that path. Father, we know that many are walking a difficult path right now, and we trust that you will be their strength and that you will be their shield. Lord, bless us in our study today. May the Word of God uh, impact our hearts in a way that, that changes us each day. And Father, I pray that you will bless in the service and in the other classes that are occurring at this hour, and that in every way, the name of Jesus Christ will be exalted. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're studying in the 15th chapter of the book of Numbers. And I'd like to read today the last five verses, beginning at verse 37. Numbers 15, 37. Then the Lord, Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them, and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. We have over the past several weeks been looking at Israel in the wilderness. And Israel in the wilderness brought to the place of the invasion, the invasion that should have happened, but rejecting that, and now God is granting to them instruction almost as if they had or were about to again re-enter the land. But these instructions, of course, will, will be carried out in, in the future. This application, though, this morning that we've just read was not to be something necessarily for the future. With the innate proclivity to rebellion against God, which is characteristic of virtually everyone, uh, people, it seems to me, can never be too often reminded of the eternal importance of obedience to God's Word. It really just keeps coming back down to that. It just keeps coming back down to that. And, and God knew that these people were going to experience another 40 years, or 38 and a half, whatever you want to do the math there, of wandering in the wilderness for blatant disobedience, and they had just experienced the execution of a rebel, and we read that last week. And so the people were ready for another visual aid. 
One of the things you find about God, particularly as he dealt with Israel, he was big on visual aids. And he was always giving them something tangible to remind them of their faith. I mean, the Ten Commandments were actually carved in stone, which they could see. And, and, and a tabernacle was raised, and the high priest would dre dress in this lovely you know, garment. And later on, there would be the bronze serpent. And these things God would give as touchstones of faith. And in this passage this morning, we're, we're looking at another visual aid that God is giving so that the people will not take their faith lightly. So they'll be constantly reminded of the importance of their commitment to God. We're told in this passage that they were supposed to attach a tassel on the corners of their garment, the four corners of their garments. And on this tassel, or maybe attaching the tassel to the garment, it, the, the actual logistics here are not terribly clear, but at least on the tassel, or one of the cords of the tassel, was to be a blue cord. We read that in the passage. Now, this garment upon which the attachment was to be made was the outer garment, the cloak or the shawl that an Israelite would wear, particularly when he was out uh, traveling someplace, uh, not doing his normal labor like out plowing the field or milking the cows or whatever, but in travel or, or in any kind of a social arrangement or as they go before God, they would wear this cloak or this outer garment uh, on their bodies. And from the four corners of this cloak were to, be, were, were to hang these tassels as this constant reminder of their commitment to God. Every time they saw the tassel, it was to bring to their minds that they are gods. That was the purpose of these tassels. Now, commentators do not come to any agreement as to the meaning of the blue cord. It probably refers to the throne of God, to the glory of God, because we were told in the, in the visions that, that Ezekiel and others would have of, God, of God's heaven, that there would be this azure uh, color that was part of the, of the kingdom of God. And so certainly that could be its meaning. But what is interesting here is that whatever you do, there are people who will distort it. Whatever God commands to be done, there are people who will change it. This was supposed to be a daily, tangible reminder of the fact that Israel was God's people and that they were to walk in faith and obedience moment by moment, hour by hour. And they would, like so many other physical aids that God would give to Israel, be distorted for selfish purposes. Now, the tassels are referred to several times in the New Testament. But I'd like to refer to Matthew chapter 23 first, because the Pharisees had, it seems like, the innate ability to take whatever God had given to Israel and make something else out of it than what God intended. In the first five verses of Matthew 23, we read this, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. 
Of course, the phylacteries were the, uh, the gizmo they wore on their arm and on their forehead with, the, with a piece of the Word of God in there. And the idea was, you know, you're supposed to bind the Word of God on your forehead. Well, they literally bound it on their forehead. And, and of course, they made it bigger so it was more obvious. And it says they lengthened the tassels of their garments. What they have done is taken these tassels, which were supposed to be simple little reminders of who they belonged to, and they made them into emblems of spirituality. And the bigger, the longer they were, the more spiritual you were. And if you see pictures that show sometimes, they, they, they show what this has ultimately evolved in, you'll notice that there isn't just a, a tassel hanging on the corners. There's tassels all along the edge of the thing. I mean, they've multiplied the tassels. They've lengthened the tassels. And, and it's become uh, a, a physical example of hypocrisy is what it really has become. Now, this particular feature was something that Jesus also wore. Let me back up to Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, at the end of the chapter, verses 34 to 36, we read this, And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all the surround, surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they began to entreat him that they might just touch the fringe, or literally the tassels, of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. Jesus wore this outer cloak with the tassels on it. That was what Hebrew males did. And because Jesus himself, of course, was very God of gods, and because these people, when they touched, touched out of faith, God healed them. But they could touch the fringes and the tassels on the Pharisees' garments until they were blue in the face, and it wouldn't make any difference. It wasn't in the tassel. It was in God. And these garments would not be worn many more years after this time, actually. When the Jews began to be seriously persecuted by the Romans, and then by later individuals, they began to do away with any outer garment or any sign that made them obviously a Jewish to people. And what happened was, instead of wearing these outer cloaks with the tassels on the corners, they went to wearing undervests with little tassels on the corners. They were under the clothing, so they were doing it, but nobody could see it. Which, of course, denies the whole purpose of it in the beginning. It was to be seen as a reminder. They did, of course, though, also put the tassels on their prayer shawl. And what this cloak with the tassels does evolve into is the Jewish prayer shawl. It's what it ultimately evolves into. And, and that's the thing they put over their head when they're reading the scripture and when they're praying. And the little tassels are on the fringes on it uh, today. It's kind of a carryover from, from this. But what's interesting is the blue has no meaning anymore. The pictures I've seen, there are no blue. You know, the blue has just kind of fallen out here along the way. And you know, this is indicative of the way people will modify God's Word to suit themselves. This is what God said to do. Why do something else? We live in a day and age where everybody seems to feel that somehow we are modern people. And as modern people, we know better than the ancients. And so we can modernize everything, including the Word of God and the worship of God. And as a result, we lose the truth. Because what God proclaimed to be truth is eternal truth. It's not truth according to the moment. 
I'm not saying that we ought to be wearing garments with tassels on the corners, but I'm just using that as an illustration of the fact that the Word of God has been changed by human tradition. And of course, Jesus spoke a lot about that. You have made tradition to replace the words of God. And, and then the Pharisees didn't even keep their own traditions. They made everybody else do it. But they wouldn't do it themselves. You know, it's just a real tragic situation of how hypocrisy be becomes the order of the day. And we really need to resist that within the framework of the church. I'm not saying that the old ways of doing everything are right, but we need to be sure that what we're doing is biblical. What God has ordained, let us do. Regardless of what the outer manifestation of that might appear in, in various ages, we, we need to be obedient to the Word of God. And this is one of the big problems that the, the, the Jews are having. In fact, as we go on to the, into the next chapter, we see, you know, you almost shake your head. You think, no, can't be happening. These people never learn. Well, looked in the mirror much lately. <laughs> I can't say that about you, I guess, but I can say that about me. 16th chapter, the first three verses. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to them, You have gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Different moment, same story. It's the human condition. But one of the truths we garner from all of this is the incredible patience of God. You know, from Genesis the, the first part of the book of Genesis through the end of the book of Revelation, what you see overall is the incredible patience of God. There are those who say, oh, God is a God of wrath. And he's always zapping people. Well, if he has zapped everyone who needed to be zapped, this would be a very empty world. <laughs> so we're talking about the immense patience of God. I mean, there are 5.8 billion human beings on this earth today. God is very patient. Because only a teeny, teeny portion of those people are endeavoring to walk in the path that God has set before them. Sometime, the time frame is unknown here, but sometime in the first months, maybe even the first week or even the first days, we don't really know, after Israel left Kadesh Barnea to begin their wilderness wanderings, I mean, they're, they're now carrying out the sentence that God has given to them. Because you have refused to obey me and believe me and go into the land, you will wander in this wilderness one year for every day the spies wandered in the land or spied out the land. This is my sentence upon you. And God did not make it a, a contingent sentence. It was final. And we saw last time, they, they tried to go up and invade the land anyway and the disaster it came because it was final. And here they are, just beginning this and a new crisis surfaces. It's almost like Moses and Aaron are sitting on top of a boiling pot. You never know when it's going to boil over again. You would think, incredibly, after the tragedies at Kadesh, that another rebellion would be impossible. But as we look at this rebellion, we discover this is not principally a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. 
It's a rebellion against God himself. Now that is so often the truth. When people who call themselves the people of God rebel against the leadership which God has ordained, usually it's actually a rebellion against God. Over and over again, God had, I mean, how many times? I was thinking this morning, I'd try to go back and count it up, but I, you know, this would be a, a little bit of a process. How many times had God confirmed that Moses was his ordained leader of Israel? How many times had he confirmed Aaron as the head of the priestly tribe? These were God's chosen people. Yet for lack of counting the umpteenth time, they dare to rise up and challenge God's leadership. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On are the four named people here. Now, On drops out immediately. I mean, he's named at the beginning, and then you never hear his name again. So whether he chickened out and decided, I don't want to be a rebel, or, or what happened, we don't know. But uh, we do know that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram uh, carry out this whole thing, and they suffer the consequences in the end. But what they are doing here is exhibiting a lust for power and authority. Now, for many of us who have a natural tendency to, to want to back out of the situation and be observers, we may not understand this. Why would anybody want to rule this people, especially Israel? Why would anybody want to have authority there? You just think of all the burdens attached to it. It's like, why would anybody want to be president of the United States? You know? That, that would be one of the last desires that I'd have, you know, in this life. Uh, but there are people who do, obviously, because we've had one ever since, you know, George Washington was first elected. And we've had various ones who've tried to get elected to the position at the same time. So uh, there, there is this, this innate desire to lord it over other people. Now, Korah represented the tribe of Levi. It's important to note these the tribal connections here. Korah was a Levite. And from what follows, we have to assume that most of the 250 that follow him are probably also Levites. It seems as if it's an intra-tribal rebellion to some degree. In other words, Korah is of the same tribe as Moses and Aaron. Dathan and Abiram, however, are of the tribe of Reuben. Now, Reuben was the eldest son. He is the one who should have had the authority within the tribal uh, congregation. But as we have discovered, he does not, and his people do not. Judah was given the priority politically. Levi, the, tr the priority in the spiritual realm, I guess you could say, or what should we call it, the, uh, the religious establishment. And, and, and so we have these individuals who seem to be fostering a double revolt here because God deals with Dathan and his crew in one way and Abiram, I'm sorry, Korah and his crew in one way, Dathan and Abiram in another way here. And, and so it seems like we're, we're talking about a religious revolt and a political revolt occurring simultaneously here, led by these individuals. Somehow these four mutineers were able to garner 250 men to join in this rebellion. And what's interesting about this is, when you look at the end of verse 2, it doesn't say that this is riffraff or rebel, ra rabble. It says, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. We're talking about leaders here. People 
who, who were looked up to by others are joining in this rebellion. And so it's a serious matter here that Moses must deal with. Now the ground was fertile for insurrection. They had just failed to do what God had ordained them to do. They did not get the land. They're wandering in the desert. So you can imagine there are a lot of disgruntled people here. Many particularly, obviously, Dathan, Abiram, and Korah, but many others, probably the 250, were unwilling to accept responsibility for not having entered the land. They don't want to be responsible. They want to put the blame elsewhere, and that's part of what's behind this rebellion. They want to transfer blame from themselves to Moses and Aaron. And, you know, by implication, maybe God too. Because Moses promised, God promised, and yet it didn't deliver. They're not in the land. They just slightly forget the fact that they were the rebels who refused to go in. They've been sentenced to 40 years of wandering in the foreboding wilderness. Now, just remember, this is not a yellow brick path they're wandering on. They're not wandering around in Central Park. They're wandering around in the desert. And this wasn't a very uh, desirable thought for them. So what you've got is a major butt-passing situation here. Uh, which is developing. They're hoping, and, and it seems that the bulk of the people are supportive of the rebels. You've all heard the, uh, the truth within democracy that to say nothing is to assent to whatever's happening. And so by the congregation being at least tacitly supportive of the rebels, they are, they're on their side, in effect. So Moses and Aaron are in this situation again of being the few against the many. And it seems that many of the people are kind of hoping that maybe the re rebellion will succeed so that they can kind of pass off this guilt onto Moses and Aaron and see Moses and Aaron, you know, they're getting on in years. They're in their 80s. You know, uh, maybe we want younger leadership here, you know. And this seems to have had the support of the multitude. Now, the excuse given by Korah for his rebellion here is that the whole congregation of Israel was holy, set apart unto God, God's chosen people. Not just Moses and Aaron, the whole people. Therefore, they could all know God's direction. They all had direct wiring to the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, they don't need Moses and Aaron leading them around. They don't need the word coming through Moses. Step aside, Moses. We are all holy. We can lead ourselves. You know, it, it's almost humorous because, I mean, what is Korah saying? He, he's saying that this rebellious, faithless people that would not go into the land when God said, go in and showed them that they could take the land, that this is the holy people unto God. I mean, it's, it's a joke. It's presumptuous. But beyond that, Korah even dared to accuse Moses and Aaron of exalting themselves above the assembly of the Lord. Now, their accusations totally and, of course, conveniently ignore three important facts. First of all, we have already read in the past that God considered Moses to be a very humble man. Now, if God considers somebody to be humble, I think you can decide that they are probably humble. Secondly, 
that Moses had made it abundantly clear to God and to Israel he didn't want to lead this stinking people anyway. I mean, he had told God that at the burning bush. And if, as you go through this passage, you, you see where Moses is in effect saying, it doesn't come out in black and white, he's in effect saying, this is the test we'll apply. And if God wants to set us aside, fine, we'll gladly step aside. You know, if God has somebody else for leadership, that's wonderful. <laughs> we're tired of this anyway. And then, of course, the biggest thing they were overlooking was the fact that it was God who had ordained Moses and ordained Aaron, and that was abundantly clear. How many times does God have to say it before the people understand it? Well, what this makes clear to us is that the rebellion is not based upon logic. The rebellion is not based upon some failure on the part of Moses and Aaron. It is based upon rebellion against God himself. And I, as I was thinking about this, this passage came to mind this morning. I'd like to read to you. It's not on your outline, but um, on, in Samuel, the eighth chapter. First Samuel. First Samuel chapter eight, beginning at verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together. Does this sound familiar? You know, all the elders of Israel are gathering together here. And came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. <laughs> now they could have, in fact, been saying that about Moses and Aaron, you know. You guys have got a little bit old for this job. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Well, we have no idea what Moses' sons were doing here. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Notice God's response. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have said to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now that is essentially what is happening here in the 16th chapter of Numbers. It is the same thing. Because these people know that Moses is the God-ordained and God-proven leader, and they were there when they witnessed and witnessed the ordination of Aaron. So, I mean, you know, they, they can't plead ignorance here. They, they can't plead that God has now made it clear that it's time to move on. No. It's a rebellion against God himself. Flat out, plain, rebellion against God himself. And how God deals with it proves this. Because God doesn't mess around. Let's look at verse 4 of Numbers 16. When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. One of the things you discover about this as you read through these passages is Moses gets a good deal of exercise. You know. uh, <laughs> falling on his face. And he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning, <laughs> not sometime in the future, tomorrow morning. I don't know. If I'd have been Korah and the other guys, I think a chill would have gone <laughs> right up and down my spot. So soon? <laughs> tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who will bring him to himself, even the one whom he will choose. He will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers for yourselves, Korah, and all your company, and put fire in them, and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow, 
and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Moses demonstrates repeatedly a God-given frame of thinking, a God-given attitude. Because when these words come, I mean, what is the natural reaction? Somebody basically comes up and says, you're not doing a good job of leading, and I'm going to replace you. Your natural defense is to defend yourself, right? But what does Moses do? He falls on his face before God and before even his attackers in humility and calls upon the name of the Lord. Moses is such a wonderful example to us of where we must go in every situation, be it good or be it ill. We need to be on our faces before God. Then he spoke. And what's interesting is the words which he spoke were not fleshly words driven by, by a, an insulted human being, but they are words given by God through Moses. And God, I mean, Moses didn't make up this. He didn't say, well, tomorrow we're going to have this showdown. God obviously gave him this time frame. And God revealed to Moses how to demonstrate to the whole nation who God's chosen leaders were. Yet again, two things to note here. As I emphasized a moment ago, God continues to demonstrate his incredible patience here. I mean, over and over again, he has reaffirmed Moses and Aaron. He has refer, re, reaffirmed his sovereignty. No, he, he, you were not to live as the pagans lived. They lived their lives all day long, all week long, and then on their worship day they would go and give sacrifices to their, their idol, and then they'd go off and live however they felt like living the rest of the week. That wasn't how God's people were to live. They were to live moment by moment in reference to the God who is the God not of the Lord's day, the God of every day, the God with whom they were to walk hand in hand, heart to heart, face to face, he had reaffirmed this over and over again. And therefore, God could have just flicked these guys right into the next life. Moment, at that very moment. Just, I mean, he had just zapped the ten spies with a plague and they had died. It probably wasn't a pleasant death. God could have done this without further ado. He would have needed to have justified himself in any way. But as always, God has a lesson to teach his people. And that's what we find, isn't it? From one end of the book to the other end of the book, God has a lesson to teach. And it's funny how often the lesson is the same. Secondly, we discover that God comes to the aid of his chosen leaders immediately. Right at the very moment, he comes to the aid of Moses and Aaron. He doesn't allow this debate to just spread and grow and the rebellion to get broader and broader and deeper and the flames to whip out of control. But he spoke through Moses and he said, All right, guys, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his. I, I just, you know, have a hard time understanding how these people, Korah and Dathan and Abiram, particularly Korah here, who, who have... You know, they're, they're probably fairly high up in the ranks of society, so they had probably rubbed shoulders with Moses and Aaron quite a bit, particularly their same tribe. And, and they had seen God spoke, speak through Moses. They had seen Moses come down off the mountain with his face aglow. I mean, Moses had spent 40 days and 40 nights in that 
consuming fire up there and was untinged by it, not Korah. How, how could he stand face to face with Moses and challenge him and, and have Moses deliver this message? Okay, well, tomorrow we'll find out who's, who's who here. I mean, God had proven who Moses was re repeatedly, but who knew who Korah was? I'm sure many of Israel knew, but this is the first time we've heard of him. So he obviously wasn't, you know, right there, hand in hand with Moses all along the way. So Moses lays out God's plan of action. He proclaims a level playing field here. All of you bring your censers with your fire and your incense, and so will Aaron. So Aaron doesn't have any particular advantage over you. We're all going to be at the same position. We're all going to stand before God with our censers and our fire and our incense, and God's going to let us know who's his. And to me, this should have been a mighty warning to Korah and those with him, because you'll notice how Moses ends this and I think these are the words of God. At the end of verse 7, he says, You have gone far enough, you sons of Levi. That doesn't sound real encouraging. You know? It doesn't sound like God is saying, Well, maybe it is time for a change. <laughs> it sounds like they're just about, just about to hit a brick wall at about 500 miles an hour. That's what it sounds like to me. Moses then goes on, <clears throat> to expose Korah's lust for power by pointing out all that God had done for him. All that God had done for him and all the Levites. I mean, God had empowered the Levites to be the keepers of the tabernacle and to be the ones who would, who would minister as priests to the congregation. That was a blessed opportunity. They, they, they were in a privileged position. But it seems the implication here is that Korah in his heart wants the high priesthood. It seems that Korah wants Aaron's position. That seems to be implied here in verse 11 where he says, Therefore you and your company are gathered together against the Lord. It doesn't say gathered against me and Aaron. But he says you have gathered against the Lord not Aaron, because who in the world is Aaron without the Lord? He's nobody. Without the Lord's anointing, who is Aaron? So the implication is very clear here that Korah wants his position and that Moses does not view this as, uh, okay, well, I, maybe it's time for an election. <laughs> Moses views this as, as Korah's leading a rebellion against God himself. I mean, you have to understand, we have to come, I think, to the place of understanding that Moses has walked with the Lord these many years. And through Moses has come the word of the Lord repeatedly. Moses knows in his heart truth. And Moses knows in his heart, Moses has discernment, the discernment of the indwelling spirit. And he knew that this was rebellion. And he knew Korah's heart. And if Korah had had an ounce of wisdom, He'd have heard the warning, warning from Moses and he'd have called this whole thing off right now. But he doesn't. Verse 12. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram. I mean, now he's had this encounter with, with Korah. The other two rebels weren't there, obviously. So now he sends a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey? to have us die in the wilderness. 
but you would also lord it over us. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now, Dathan and Byram will not come before Moses because to come to Moses at Moses' summons would be to admit Moses' authority. Now, they aren't going to do that because they're challenging Moses' leadership. As Korah is challenging Aaron, these two are challenging Moses directly because they're sons of Reuben. And Reuben should be the leadership tribe. I mean, Moses is not even of the tribe of Judah. He's of Levi. And, and so they're not going to admit to Moses' authority. So they're not going to listen to his summons. Instead, they accuse Moses of leading Israel astray. And they make the craziest accusations here. Now, you and I know something about the situation from which the Israelites have come. I think through our study, we have come to know about the horror and the degradation of the Israelite captivity in Egypt. And so to me, it is dumbfounding that we read in verse 13 that Dathan and Abiram referred to the land of Egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey. No, because a land flowing with milk and honey is not a figure of speech just meaning that there are good things to eat there. It means also that it's a land of shalom, a land of peace and well-being. It's, it's an expression that means all is well with me and my family in this land. And certainly that was not true in Egypt. Oh yeah, they may have leeks and garlics and melons and fish, which they overstated. But they were in captivity. They, they were an oppressed people. That's not shalom. And that's not flowing with milk and honey. I mean, these guys are purposely misstating the facts. It's not that they have forgotten. It's not that the situation was different from, um, from what we assume it to be. It's because they are purposely lying here, distorting the facts. Now, this phrase land flowing with milk and honey, was first used by God when he was talking to Moses at the burning bush. And then when God spoke to Moses later on, and, and we read these passages as we went through Exodus, God would say, I'm, I want you to lead the people into this land which flows with milk and honey. This is God's figure of speech. And certainly Moses used it several times when he was encouraging the people along, you know. They're getting bogged down there in the desert and in, in the wilderness, and it's getting hard. And he say, look, Canaan's just ahead, a land flowing with milk and honey. We'll be out of this dust and heat. Well, maybe not out of the heat, but out of the dust. We'll be in, in, a, in a land that is you know, well-developed and, and we'll have all these good things. Now the rebels are throwing the phrase right back in Moses' face. They're using it to describe Egypt, which was a joke. And they're accusing Moses of not leading them into the land which flows with milk and honey meaning Canaan, which is God's terminology of it, so that they could have their fields and vineyard. Moses, it's your fault that we're not in Canaan. Well, I don't know which planet these people came from, but it certainly wasn't Earth in this thinking. They are denying the obvious fact that they were amongst those who listened to the ten spies and they were amongst those who refused to go into the land because you and I know from the passage we studied before how many people were willing to go into the land. You could count them on one hand. 
Moses and Aaron, Joshua, Caleb, and probably Miriam, even though she's not listed, but we assume she was willing. So we have those five. And there might have been some kids, you know, well, Dad, why can't we go in, you know? <laughs> but amongst those who were 20 and above, there were only five who were willing to go. None of the rest were willing to go, which means that's true of Dathan and Abiram and Korah and the 250 and, and all the rest. They were not willing to go in. So what is being displayed here is the characteristic of human nature. Blame someone else for your failure. And of course, we live in a society where this has been incorporated in, into the way our justice, if you want to call it justice, system works. Blame society. You know, society's at fault for everybody's problems. Well, what is society anyway? Well, that's all of us. These men are mocking Moses. They are arrogant, rebellious in spirit, who displayed not only in what they said, their attitude, not only what they said, but in how they said it. I don't think the message that they sent to Moses was termed in kind words. I think it was arrogant and spiteful that the words they used against Moses were spoken in a way that was demeaning. Now Moses earlier, and we read this uh, back in verse 9, in trying to bring Korah to his senses, he said, Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest? Uh, the literal Hebrew there, where it says, Is it not enough? is, is it a little thing? Is it just a little thing that God has chosen you to draw you near to him to minister to this people? Is that a little thing? Well, how Dathan and Byram heard about this, we don't know. But as you read, as, as we read in this verse, uh, 9, no, we're down a little bit further, verse 13, they use the same exact phrase. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to die in this wilderness? They're saying the same thing. Is it a little thing that you have done this? They are mocking Moses directly here when they, they say this. And, and this is their rebuttal to Moses. You brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey with a promise that we will go into a land flowing with milk and honey, that every man will sit in security under his vine. And where are we? We're in the wilderness. And it's your fault. Is that a little thing, Moses? And all that you want to lord it over us and you want us to die out here because God has said we're all going to die out here. It's your fault, Moses. It's your fault, Moses. Moses had broad shoulders. But Moses had a big God. And that was where his salvation rested. They accused Moses of being an arrogant prince who lorded it over them. <laughs> is that the Moses that we've been reading about? I mean, this is so funny. Moses didn't want to lead them. He begged God, go send someone else. I don't want to lead these people. It's true when God was about ready to cremate the whole crew that Moses pled with God, but it wasn't because he wanted to lead them any longer. It's because God had given him a heart of intercession and caring for his people. And so he kept standing in the gap for his people, not because he wanted to be their leader. He didn't want to be their leader. It was so far from the truth. And it must have been cutting to Moses 
accusing me of wanting to lord it over them? I don't know. I, I think you could have seen steam rising from his head. Now, this is so far from the truth. And of course, he had made it so abundantly clear these people knew. He had said it publicly. I don't want to lead you. Then finally, they make a phrase that sounds a little bit crude here. Uh, they say at the end of verse 14, Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. <laughs> um, this is a, a figure of speech again. This does not mean that they expect Moses to actually, uh, the Hebrew is, bore out their eyes. He, he's they aren't saying that Moses is literally going to cut the eyes of these people out. What he's, what he's saying here is that we're not going to come up there and be hoodwinked by you any longer. We're not going to be blinded by all this, this, this verbiage that you pour out here because we know your real intentions. So we're not going to come up and be blinded by, by your arrogant presence and, and your ability to speech and, and the miracles you can perform. We're not going to be blinded by this anymore. So we're not going to come up. Now we're looking at the physical human aspects of all of this. But God is a party to everything that's going on here. And this is a direct challenge to his leadership and his choosing of Moses and Aaron. It is such an impudent, outright rebellion that, Mo that God will not ignore it. And God is going to deal with it. And God is not going to deal with it in some kind of grandfatherly way as we might, you know, try to impute to God. He's going to deal with it as the sovereign God as the scripture tells us, our God is a consuming fire and 250 individuals will discover that tomorrow morning. Well, today we'll have to bring it to a halt at this point and next week we'll look at what happens to Korah and his 250, what happens to Dathan and Abiram and those that have sided with them as they square off with Moses at high noon or early morning or however you want to put it. <laughs>